Amen. Good morning. It's so good to be here. As Gareth said, that we come from Georgia, um, and uh, we are continuing on to India, and uh, we, we're just so delighted to be with you. I've, I've been aware of your church for some time through the Franks and through some other friends that I have here in the United Arab Emirates, uh, pastors from the United States, and it's, a, it's just a privilege to be here with you. Uh, my friendship with Gareth has grown over these past few years, and he and his family have become dear, dear friends of, of ours. Um, our relationship has been such a, a wonderful blessing, with the exception of a time that I was with Gareth in India a couple years ago, and he was taking me uh, on the streets of Kalapur and encouraged me to take a bite of this chili pepper that was uh, just a street vendor there, <laughs> and um, it it, the, the pepper was so hot that I thought I had done permanent damage to my tongue. And every pore in my face opened up and I was crying tears of pain. And uh, several days later, my tongue recovered and my relationship with Gareth recovered. <laughs> but um, he, he and his wife have been such dear friends of ours and they have come to minister with us in the United States at our church, and, uh, and I send greetings from my church in, in the United States. And as Gareth mentioned, I'm originally from the Mexican border in California, and he said that there were some, um, some Spanish speakers in the congregation, and that maybe I should say a few words in Espanol. Soy de la frontera de México, y es un placer para mí estar con ustedes hoy. No puedo creer que estoy hablando español en Abu Dhabi. Um, so it's a great privilege. Y si ustedes hablan español, háblame después del servicio en español porque, porque tengo que practicar en español. Okay? All right. Gracias. Well, if you have a... Amen. If you have a Bible, I would love for you to open it to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 is where we will be this morning in my church, our church in the United States. We've been doing a series through Romans. We're actually in Romans chapter 14. But I want us to look at Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, which are a very famous portion of Scripture. I love maps. I love overviews. I love to get a, a big picture of, of things. In fact, yesterday when we were flying in to Abu Dhabi, I love the approach into the airport, and you can see the city and you can see the surrounding area. I love to get a view, a kind of bird's eye view of all things. And I think Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, is one of those verses in the Bible that gives us a kind of overview of the whole Bible itself. In fact, I think Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, is a kind of gospel or Bible in miniature form. If we stare at this verse, it will give us a picture, I think, of the whole message of the Bible, which is, I think, the good news of what God has done to make a people for himself, to reconcile a people to himself through the work of his son, God the Son, Jesus. And so we're going to look at verses 16 and 17 this morning. I think you'll be helped if you open your Bible to Romans. We'll start in Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. And we're going to stare at Paul's words there in that text. But then we're going to look at a few other verses in Romans that I think will help color in the lines of what Paul is saying in this beautiful text. So let me pray, and then I'm going to read the text. And then we're going to look at the good news of the gospel. Now, you may be thinking, well, Brad, we, we know the good news. We know the gospel. I, I hope that you do. But I want to encourage us this morning to think of the good news of the gospel not merely as a, a, a few facts that you must agree with to, to secure your eternity. Certainly it's that. But I want us to look at the good news of the gospel as the, really the whole narrative of the Bible itself, the most important news in the universe and not only this piece of news that saves an individual person and makes them right with God, but a way, uh, 
a, a news to live life from, the, the controlling truth of all of the Christian life and, and why we're here this morning. So let me pray, and then we'll read this text. Father, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you that we can gather this morning. Thank you for the beautiful songs and scriptures and prayers that have already been prayed. Thank you for the gathering of your people. Thank you for the beauty of the church, this local church. And we thank you for the the church gathered all around the world. Thank you for the body of Christ. Thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit that has given us life. We confess, as Paul writes in Acts, that it is in you that we live and move and have our being. Jesus, your word says in Hebrews 1 that you uphold the universe by the word of your power. We We live because you've breathed life into us and you are holding us together even now. We thank you for your word that is true. It is inspired by you. You have breathed it out and it is without air and it has all authority. And so we come now thanking you for your word that we can open it and we submit ourselves underneath the authority of your word. And we pray, God, that we would not judge it, but that it would judge us and that you would transform us, and that as we gather here this morning, that you would make your people, this local church, more like Jesus. And we pray for any friends that may be with us that do not yet know you, that are not yet trusting in Jesus. I pray that by your sovereign grace, by your power, you would make them alive, that you would give them a new heart so that they can believe the glorious news of the gospel. I pray for my brothers and sisters that already believe this gospel that we will look at this morning, that you would continue to transform us, that we would live life as gospel-dependent people. And Lord, be glorified as we gather and be encourage the saints and save the lost, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me read Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. The Apostle Paul writes this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Do you know this word gospel? Do you know what it means? It means literally the good news. It comes from a Greek word, evangelion, which means the good news. It's where we get our our English word evangelist. It's where we get the Latin word evangelista, which actually, believe it or not, is my last name. How wonderful is that? My my last name is Evangelista. I am of Italian heritage on my father's side, and and the Lord in his kindness gave me a name that uh, would be my life's work, the proclamation of the gospel. It's a proclamation. And and, and Paul begins his letter by by telling us that, that this gospel is something that he's not ashamed of. And and I want us to look at a few words that Paul uses. And these words are going to to form our outline. So the first thing that I want us to see about this good news of the gospel, as Paul says in verse 16, is that it is for salvation. It's for salvation. This good news that he's going to explain in in 16 chapters is for salvation, which, which, which tips us off at the very beginning that this good news is is for salvation. It means that we as people need rescuing. What Paul is about to outline, what the whole Bible is about, is for the salvation of sinners. In other words, what mankind's greatest need is, is that we don't need help. We don't need improvement. We don't need tips on how to be better leaders. We don't need some religious ethic to make us better people. No, at the core, we need to be saved. We need rescuing. And that's very clear. If we, if we just scan the whole Bible, we see at the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 3, after God has created 
all that is, and he creates Adam and Eve and places them in the garden and makes them stewards over his creation. We see in Genesis chapter 3 that Adam and Eve willfully disobey God and they fall. And in the beginning, we see the consequences of sin. Adam and Eve, our first parents, it's so beautiful to see so many different countries and so many different ethnicities even represented in this local congregation, so many different shades of skin. But do you realize that we all descend from the same two parents, Adam and Eve? And as a result, we all inherit their, their spiritual DNA, which the Bible is very clear, says is a fallen spiritual state. We are separated from God in the garden. Adam and Eve are excommunicated, we might say, from the presence of God. And they are by nature now sinners. And everything that flows from this fountain, this first fountainhead of humanity, Adam and Eve, is now, is now sinful. In fact, if you just flip over to Romans chapter 5, Paul explains what happens in the garden in Genesis 3 with this important verse in Romans 5 verse 12. He says this about the state of all mankind in Adam as a sense, as our, as our father, as the fountainhead of all humanity. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. That's a hugely important verse theologically. It says that because of the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, we all inherit this, this sin nature, and we are all in a sort of representative sense. They're with Adam, now sinners, and what has this sin, this transgression against God's holy command and law, what has it caused? It's caused us to spiritually die. Of course, we're very much alive in the world. As we look at the millions of people that live in the world, they may be physically alive, but they are by nature spiritually dead, which means that they are completely unable, unable to do anything to make themselves right with God. This, this is the, the state of all humanity. You may be thinking, well, Brad, you... You titled your message, The Good News of the Gospel, and you haven't said many good things up to this point. You came all the way from America to tell us that, that sin brings death and all of humanity is by nature dead in sin? Yes, because you can't understand the good news unless you understand the bad news that the good news stands in contrast to. And so we see that this death is the natural state of all mankind. And if we go back to Romans chapter 1, we realize that this sin, this rebellion against a holy God has caused God's wrath to be barreling down on all humanity. That's what Romans chapter 1 verse 18, it says that the wrath of God, the right judgment of God, the righteous judging of mankind's rebellion is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men or sin. That's where all mankind starts and it applies to all of us, dear friends. Romans chapter three, verse 23 says that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Ephesians chapter two, we won't take the time to read it, but Ephesians chapter two, verses one through three says that, that all of mankind is born by nature now because of Adam's fall and because of his representation of all of us. We are all by nature children of wrath. That, that's where we all stand as sinners. And you may think, well, this is a common objection of the world. We may think, well, yeah, but I, I, I know that I'm a sinner, but I'm not as bad as the next guy. You know, I don't, I don't, I'm not as bad as the worst person around. And that may be true in a horizontal sense. But this is important for us to understand if we're going to understand the gospel rightly is that sin, our fallen state by nature, doesn't, doesn't obtain its gravity by how it compares to other people around us, but by how it compares to God in his holiness. So sin finds its weight. It finds its gravity because of how it compares to God's holiness. 
Let me give you this analogy to help you understand that. Um, If somebody were to, as I'm preaching, rush up into the podium and slap me across the face, that would be well, it would, it would kind of be a little awkward, wouldn't it? I mean, remember, I mean, even months from now, you'd be, hey, remember that time that guest preacher came up and Joe just bolted up from the second row and slapped him? Golly, that was a Wow, I'll never forget that. It would be awkward, and it would probably make the rest of our day pretty, pretty strange. But, you know, we'd get over it and we'd move on. And, and you know what? I might even slap the guy back. But, you know, there wouldn't be many consequences, right? But... Imagine if uh, the Queen of England were here and she was speaking in the UAE and you busted through her security and you slapped the Queen of England on the face. God forbid, I love the Queen of England. It would go badly for you. You'd get arrested. You'd be in jail, right? Well, so you've done the same thing What's the difference? The dignity of the office against whom you committed something, right? And in the same way, we tend to judge our sin horizontally as if how it compares to everybody else. But sin, biblically, is judged vertically. So even our small, seemingly small transgressions and disobedience, even if it's a kind of inward self-righteousness against a holy God, deserves judgment and wrath. And the Bible is very clear that that's where we all stand. And friends, this is important for us to understand is that it hasn't just separated from God us from God. It has rendered us all completely unable to do anything about our sin. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, don't take the time to turn there, but in Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8, it says that this sin nature that we all participate in has made us unable to obey God in any saving way. We cannot obey God's law in our natural state. That's the predicament of all mankind. Listen to what J.C. Ryle, a famous British Anglican back in the 1800s, said about this, this view of sin and how important it is. He says that dim or indistinct views of sin are the origin of most of the errors, heresies, and false doctrines of the present day. If a man does not realize the dangerous nature of his soul's disease, you cannot wonder if he is content with false or imperfect remedies. The plain truth is that a right knowledge of sin lies at the root of all saving Christianity. Why do I press this point? Because in order for us to understand the good news of the gospel, we need to understand that it is a salvation from spiritual death. So we don't need improvement. We don't need tips on how to live a better life at its core. Although the Bible's full of those things that will help us. But at its core, the good news of the Bible, the good news of Romans, the good news of the gospel is that God brings dead people to spiritual life. We need to be rescued, and we need to understand what we need to be rescued from. So the first point there is that we, that the good news is for salvation, we need rescuing. Which then leads us to the second point I want us to see, and it's there in the text in verse, six, verse 16. It is for salvation, but look what it says before salvation. It is the power of God that brings about this salvation. So the second point is this, is that it is the power of God. The good news of the gospel is it's the power of God that does the saving. He does it all. How does God save dead sinners? He saves us through this good news, through what he has done. And what is this good news? It is what he has done through his son on the cross. I don't think we have this on the screen, but I do want you to flip to Romans chapter 3, and I want you to see this important text. In fact, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, I would venture to say, now my wife says I exaggerate sometimes, and that may be true. 
But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that I think Romans chapter 3, verse 21, let me back up. I think, I think the Bible is the most important book, clearly. I think, I think Romans may be the most important letter. And I think Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, may be the most important paragraph ever written. And I think I'm in good company because Martin Luther agrees with me. Let me read to you Romans chapter 3, verses 21, starting in 21 through 26. This is an incredibly important paragraph to understand the gospel. He says, but now, remember what we're thinking about here is how does God save people? How does God save people? And it is, the answer is it's the power of God, but how does that come about? But now the righteousness of God, and this phrase righteousness of God is, is really important. How, when, 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 when Paul uses this phrase righteousness of God in Romans, he's not so much just talking about the holiness of God, although clearly God is holy and righteous, but he's also talking about how does the holy God make people righteous? And so in, in many ways, you could summarize the, the book of Romans by saying how a righteous God righteouses unrighteous people. That, that's the message of Romans. And so what, how, verse 21, but now the righteousness of God or the way that God makes dead sinners righteous, how he does that has been manifested or displayed apart from the law, although the law and the prophets meaning the Old Testament, bear witness to it. So the whole Old Testament is not merely a collection of stories about the life of Israel. It is, it is a shadow that is pointing to this good news of how God will righteous or make righteous unrighteous people. And what is it? It is the righteousness of God, verse 22, through faith in Jesus Christ, for all who believe, there is no distinction. And so the way that God makes righteous people is, by, is through Jesus Christ. That's what verse 22 tells us. Well, what does he do it, it, through Jesus Christ? Well, we see the need restated for us in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And how are they justified? How are they made right? By his grace, verse 24 as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And look at verse 25, so important. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now your version may not say propitiation. It may say something like sacrifice of atonement. But let me explain this word propitiation. It's an all-important word. It means a wrath absorbing sacrifice. It means satisfying the holiness and righteousness of God for our sin and extinguishing it and turning that wrath and judgment into favor and grace. And that's what Jesus, that's at the very heart of the good news of the gospel. And this is the very heart of the power of God, how God makes unrighteous, dead sinners righteous. How does he do it? Through the propitiation, through the sacrifice of his son on the cross. So what has Jesus done? Jesus, God the Son, has become a man. Friends, that's a great mystery, isn't it? God in the flesh lives a perfect life where all of us as sons and Adam and Eve have disobeyed God and been separated from God. Jesus, God the Son, becomes a man just like us, tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin, obeys God perfectly, and then lays down his perfect life voluntarily on the cross. And what does he do on the cross? He propitiates, he bears, he satisfies the wrath of God 
that should have been ours. So the good news of the gospel is that Jesus satisfies God's wrath for those that put their hope and trust in him. Friends, that is glorious good news. Friends, at its core, think about this for a second with me. We need rescuing, but what do we need rescuing from? We don't need rescuing from less than an optimal life or not the best job that we were hoping for or or the lack of the realization of all of our life's dreams and hopes. What we need rescuing from is the wrath of God that was coming down on us because of our rebellion and Jesus on the cross is satisfying. He is extinguishing. He's removing the wrath of God for us. And so salvation can be explained. Salvation by God, from God, for God. Friends, God does it all. And do you see how good news, what good news this is, is the message of the gospel is not Start improving yourself and come to church and, and, and come up with some New Year's resolutions on how to live better. The message, the good news of the gospel is that you can't save yourself, but God saves you through the work of his son. He does it all. Friends, that's why the gospel is such good news. Jesus does it for us. In fact, the sister read it for us earlier before at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, one of the most important verses in all of the Bible. It says that he made him, this is speaking of the Father, to the Son. He made him, God the Father, made him, God the Son, who knew no sin, perfect in all of his ways, to be sin for us on the cross and absorb God's wrath, to substitute himself, taking our punishment, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Theologians in the Protestant Reformation called this the great exchange. On the cross, Jesus takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. Now, those who were unrighteous, who were dead in their sins, can be made right with God through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Friends, this is glorious good news. It's not try hard, be good enough, it's be made new through God's power. He does it all. He makes you alive. That's the glorious good news of the gospel. Now let's just, let's just pause here for a second just to apply this truth to, to ourselves and why this should cause us uh, such hope. Is, is first, this should cause us humility, shouldn't it? I mean, nobody in this room was a good candidate for God's grace. No matter where you grew up, no matter whether you were from a strong Christian family, no matter whether you were from a a, a wonderful spiritual heritage, those may have been gifts that God used in your life to draw you to him. But at its core, you started off like every other human being, dead in your sins, and God, because of his grace, made you alive. And so nobody, nobody in this room should, should look down upon other people who are far from God. This should humble us. One of my favorite Puritans was a man named Richard Stib- Sibbs, and he wrote a book called The Bruised Reed, and it's about God's tender care for bruised reeds. And one of his applications in this, this sermon, which became a book, was that we, because God deals tenderly with sinners, that we as Christians should as well. And he says that the Holy Spirit is content or satisfied or happy to dwell in smoky, offensive souls. And so therefore, we should be too. Think about that for a minute. I like to think about that. Maybe, I don't know how it is here at New Life Church, but you know, don't tell anybody if you go to my church in America, but there are a few brothers and sisters in my home church that, you know, I mean, occasionally kind of get on my nerves a little bit, right? And there's some people that can be a little frustrating to deal with, right? Or is it just me? Am I the only grumpy Christian here? 
But when I apply the gospel to my heart, the vertical grace that I have received then bends out horizontally to those around me and I realize that I am the smokiest and offensive of all souls and God was gracious to me and therefore I can be gracious to other people because of the humility that the gospel should produce in me. Amen? And secondly, when I stare at this great truth It should cause me to worship God, to to thank God. Because salvation is not just a religious ethic. It's not just a way to live, but it's the glorious news that I was running away from God, straight to hell, dead in my sin. And God, not because of anything good in me, but simply because of his grace, saved me. I was dead and he made me alive. He gave me the gift of faith whereby he opened up my eyes so that I could behold Jesus. And this should cause me to worship. Friends, do you see that whether you've been a Christian for four days or 40 years, when you stare at this truth, it should produce worship in you. You haven't been helped. You've been rescued from eternal damnation. How can that not cause anything but worship in us? And then finally, just one final application before we move on is that, friends, this should cause us great hope. It should cause us hope for our loved ones that don't know Jesus. Nobody's beyond the reach of God. Nobody is more dead than anybody else spiritually. You don't start off more dead or less dead. You're dead in your sins. Dead people aren't more or less dead. They're dead. And so for God to resurrect a a dead person from a religious family, from a Christian family, or to resurrect a dead person from some unbelieving family is no less or more miraculous. God saves spiritually dead people. Nobody's beyond his reach. And you may be in here today, and you may be thinking, you know, I just came because somebody invited me. And so I'm going to come and be gracious to my friend, but there's no way a person like me can ever be rescued by God. There's no way a person like me could ever have a new heart. Friends, stop that. Stop thinking that way. Do you realize how ridiculous that is? God can do whatever he wants, and he can save even you. Even you. There's nothing in your life that God cannot atone for. There's nothing in your life that's more powerful than the reconciling work of Jesus on the cross. Think about, think about, just think about how actually idolatrous and self-centered that view is, is that, you know, God can save anybody else, but oh, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've done. You're nursing that little thing that maybe is in your past that you think disqualifies you, and you're taking that thing and you're putting it against the work of God the Son on the cross, and you're saying, you know, that was powerful, but this little night back in the summer of 1982 was so bad that Jesus can't save that. Oh, come on, friend, come on. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said. If you haven't read Charles Spurgeon, start. He was a British uh, English pastor in London in the mid 1900s. In the mid 1800s, um, he preached like the house was on fire and the water was ten miles away. He—that's a southern way of saying the boy could chuck some corn. He could preach the gospel. Listen to this. He said to the person who might be thinking that they are beyond the reach of grace. So this is for you if that's in the back of your mind, or this is for you if you have a loved one that you think is beyond the reach of grace. He said, come in your disorder. I mean, come to your heavenly father in all your sin and sinfulness. Come to Jesus just as you are, leprous, filthy, naked, neither fit to live nor fit to die. Come you that are the very sweepings of creation. Come, though you hardly dare to hope for anything but death. Come, though despair is brooding over you, pressing upon your bosom like a horrible nightmare. Come and ask the Lord to justify another ungodly one. Why should he not? Come, for this great mercy of God is meant for such as you. I put it in the language of the text and I cannot put it more strongly, and he's quoting here Romans 4, chapter 4, verse 5. 
the Lord God himself takes to himself the gracious title, him that justifieth the ungodly. He makes just and causes to be treated as just those who by nature are ungodly. Is that not a wonderful word for you? Do not delay till you have considered this matter well. Dear friend, come, even right now. Don't wait for a prayer to be repeated. Don't wait for a card to be filled out. Right now, where you are sitting, if you know, if the Holy Spirit has opened up your eyes that you're not trusting in Jesus, that you're trusting in yourself, or you're excluding yourself because you have wrongly judged your sin as being more powerful than grace, friend, right now, turn from those things and look to Jesus and trust in him, even now, and be made new. So how does, how does he do this? Our third point is he does it to everyone, to everyone who believes. To everyone who believes. Look at the text again in Romans chapter 1. He says, this is for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Friends, this is for all who believe. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, for all types of people, for, for rich people, for poor people, for Jews, for Greeks, for, for Gentiles, from people from every tribe and tongue. But even though God does it all, we must believe. And how does God do that? God, think. I want you to think carefully with me here. In order to be saved, a person must believe. But how can a dead person spiritually believe? How does that happen? Through the power of God. There's a kind of paradox here. God makes dead sinners alive. I want you to think about this story in the Gospels. In John chapter 11, I'll just summarize it for you. We won't take the time to read it. Jesus' friend Lazarus has, has died, and he's in the tomb, and he's dead. And the Bible wants to emphasize the fact that he's dead, and it says in the King James Version that he stinketh. In other words, his, his, his flesh is decomposing. He's dead, and people who are dead can't hear. And Jesus comes to... The, the, the entrance of Lazarus' tomb, the stone is there. Mary and Martha, his sisters, are crying. And, and what does Jesus say to Lazarus? He says, Lazarus, get up. Well, how can a dead man hear Jesus? Because the gospel is such good news. Listen to this. It gives what it requires. God made Lazarus alive, and the first gift of the new birth, the first gift of being brought back to life was the gift of faith whereby Lazarus could trust and hear Jesus and believe. So friends, right now, you must believe, we must believe, nobody's a slave apart from faith, but faith is a gift that God gives when he does the saving from the sin and the wrath of God that we need saving from. And it's for whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord. And then finally, I want us to, to conclude with this, this final truth that we see in this text. And this is for the, for the churchgoer, for, for the, the member of New Life Church. This idea of living this gospel-centered, gospel-dependent life, and it is this, it is this phrase in verse 17, that the righteous shall live by faith. So the gospel is not merely this good news that we must confess whereby our sins can be forgiven and our eternities can be secured, but the gospel is also the good news of how we not only are saved, but how we live. It's not just for a one-time salvation, but for a rest of life sanctification. We, we, by our faith, are united with Christ, and we live with him, and now we are completely dependent on the good news of the gospel that saved us to transform us through the rest of our lives. Paul says something really interesting in 1 Corinthians 15. He says about the gospel, and I'm paraphrasing here, he says that it is this gospel by which you have been saved in which you now stand and are being saved. 
And so the gospel is this active truth, this this good news of salvation is something that we need daily. It's something that we need to be transformed by, by daily to remember who we are. I think that every Christian, and I think I'm probably the greatest sufferer of this disease, even if we've been Christians for many, many years, we all suffer from, from some measure of gospel amnesia. We, we wake up and we forget, to some measure, the gospel that saved us. And so one of the reasons we need to gather together, the reason we need the Bible, the reason we need each other, is to, to ward off the effects of this gospel amnesia. So what does this gospel-dependent life look like? Let's conclude with this, just a few thoughts from Romans and maybe a few other places. The first thing that this gospel-dependent life looks like is that it is a a spirit-filled, a spirit-led life. In Romans chapter 8, there's this beautiful description of how the Spirit of God indwells us as God's people. Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 14, Paul says this, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So what Paul is saying there is that at the moment of conversion, the moment that God made you alive, this good news of the gospel, think about that, you're dead, God makes you spiritually alive, he gives you the gift of faith, in that moment you're justified, you're made right with the holy God, you, you receive the righteousness of Jesus, it's credited to you, he takes your sin, you get his righteousness. You're also adopted into the family of God. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit indwells you so that you can draw on, appropriate the strength of the good news of the gospel every day of your life. So think about it. Salvation is not just God zapping you in a one-time transaction of grace and now you're left to go live your life however you want. But the Spirit of God dwells in you And the power of God that saves you equips you to fight against your old man daily. So the good news of the gospel, this gospel-dependent life, is a spirit-indwelled life that you live daily. Secondly, it's a a church life. It's a a family life. Keep keep going there in Romans chapter 8, verse, verse 15 through 17. It says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, But you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. He's our Father. And he's a father with a huge family. And he puts us in a family. In one sense, we're part of this great grand body of Christ. We're part of the universal church of God. But friends, you and I live on opposite sides of the world. We can't do life together. We can't encourage one another. We can't live out the admonitions and the imperatives of the Bible together. And so he gives us a local church, people that we do life with, whereby we live this gospel-dependent life. We need each other. And friends, if you're a believer in Jesus, if you're a follower of Christ, if you're a Christian, you need the local church. And you need to be completely dependent on it. And you need to serve it. And you need to give your life to it. And you need to give the gifts that God has given you to this church or a Bible-believing church so that you can live this family adopted gospel-dependent life. The good news of the gospel is not an individual transaction so that you can live life individually, but he puts his spirit in you and he grafts you together with a family that you need. And you may say, oh, well, you know, no church is perfect. Oh, come on, neither are you. I mean, we're all a mess. We're all a mess. Spurgeon, another one of his beautiful quotes, he says, friends, the church is the dearest place on earth. And he says, upon conversion, a Christian should find a local church where they can 
connect and give and serve. And he says, many Christians look for the perfect church. And Spurgeon was the first one to, I think, coin this phrase. If you find a perfect church, don't go there because you will ruin it. (laughs) Friends, the church is a mess. It's a mess. We don't do things like we should in the church, right? Come on, it's not as efficient. The preaching isn't as good. Certainly on this Sunday, it's not as good as it should be. You know, all the, but friends, have you considered, think about this. Have you considered that the way that we bear with one another and all of our imperfections and the things that frustrate us about churches is actually part of the design on how to live the gospel-dependent life. Because when we bear with one another, as we show grace to one another, we, in a sense, model the grace that Jesus had with us. Jesus didn't come and say, you know what? Man, I'm coming to a perfect world that will give me all that I need, where everything's awesome. No, he came into a mess called fallen humanity. And when we put ourselves in a mess called imperfect churches and hang with them, friends, there is an opportunity to live out and display the gospel in ways that going to the best, most awesome, beautiful place could never afford you. Friends, you need the mess of the local church. You need it. You need it. And it needs you. The gospel-dependent life is is a church life. It's a church life. And I know I'm a pastor. But you need to hear these things, right? Come on. The church is the place where Christians live this gospel-centered life, and it's a word-based life. I don't have time to get into this, but God's given us his word. He's given us his word. It's, 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 it's sufficient, and it, it's, it has everything we need for life and godliness, Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 1. It's able to train us for righteousness. It's a word-based church. Friends, if you move on from the UAE and you find some other church and the pastor gets up there and he reads one verse of the Bible and then starts talking about his opinions, don't walk, run from that place. You need a place where the Bible is rightly taught, where, it's, where the Bible is the center of the teaching and it connects to the finished work of Christ. The, Christian dependent, the gospel-dependent life is a Bible-centered life. It's a spirit-indwelled life. It's a, it's a church-based life. It's a Bible-centered life. And finally, it's a Godward life. It's a, in other words, it's a life that we live not for ourselves, but towards God for others. I love this passage, and we'll end on this in Romans chapter 12. Paul, in Romans chapter 1 through 11, has really explained. Romans 1 through 11 is really the explanation of the gospel. And then, in Romans chapter 12, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. In other words, he's saying, because of everything that I've just said, because of the mercy of God in the gospel, that you were dead in your sins, and he made you alive, and he gave you his righteousness, and he atoned for your sin, and he filled you with his Holy Spirit, and he adopted you into a family called the church because of all of that mercy, because of all these things that God has done for you. Now go and see how much stuff you can accumulate and spend it on yourselves. No. Friends, that's exactly, he says, because of the mercy of God, what does he say now? Present, give yourself as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, God has given you this good news, believer. He's made this true of you. He's taken your sin. He's removed it as far as the east is from the west. He has given you Christ's righteousness. He's reconciled you to himself for all eternity so that you can spend your life for the glory of God amongst the people of God. Friends, there's nothing more satisfying than that. And that is the righteous. That's how the righteous live by faith, the gospel-dependent life. Friends, two questions. 
Maybe you're here this morning and you are not yet a believer. Will will you believe this? Will you consider this news? Will you come in your disorder? Will you consider this? You're not beyond God's grace. You may say, I have questions. I don't understand it all. Me too, friend. Come on, God can't be encapsulated in a box and explained away. There are mysteries. Why would God do it to friends? This is his ways are untraceable. I'm asking you right now, will you consider the grace of the gospel if you have not believed it? And will you come to him? Will you turn away from trusting in yourself? And will put you will you put your hope in what God the Son did on the cross for you if you will come? And then secondly, dear believer. Will you realize afresh, will we realize afresh why God rescued us with the good news of the gospel, why he made us alive, and will we respond by worshiping him? And I don't mean just singing the final song loudly, although that would be a wonderful start. But will we respond by worshiping him, by giving ourselves, by putting our head on a swivel and in practical ways thinking how we can live out the grace of the gospel in this local church and in our context here as citizens of the kingdom of God in Abu Dhabi? Friend, will you do that? Give yourself to living for this glorious good news. Well, let me pray and ask the Lord to help us with this. And I don't know what's next, whether it's a song or Gareth is coming back. I'm going to pray. And then whatever happens, musicians are coming. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for the good news of the gospel. Lord, we're proud people. We're arrogant people. We, we, even if we've known this good news, we, we tend to forget it. We think that we're owed something. And we make it about ourselves. We, we turn our lives into a cul-de-sac where, where your grace dead ends on us. Lord, would you, would you redirect our passions? If, if that's what we have settled into as believers, would you redirect us? Would you convict us? Would you chasten us? And would you call us to something better and more beautiful and more biblical, which is the the gospel-dependent life of giving our lives away in worship to you practically in the local church and as a witness to our unbelieving friends. Lord, would you call us into that? And for my friends that are here, Lord, would you, that may not know you, would you, by your grace, would you open up their eyes to the beauty of the good news and would you save them by your power for your glory? Lord, do this all, Lord. Do this all so that Jesus might receive more glory and we might walk in more joy. In his name, I pray. Amen.